Good afternoon. Everybody doing all right tonight? We're going to get started, and you're going to start tonight. You are. Here's what I want you to do. Make sure you're, you have a Bible or you're around somebody that has a Bible. If you have a Bible, this can be a solo endeavor. If you don't have a Bible, you need to find somebody that has one or let borrow somebody's phone that's got one. Um, you're more than welcome to do this as a tandem or pair or group if you would like. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 22. And I, you have work here. It's not homework. It's church work. All right? This is what I want you to look for in here. Okay? Two things. First of all, any what questions do you have after reading it? So you're going to read it and then, okay, here's a question I have out of that. And the second thing is, if you had to say the main thing Peter is saying in these verses is. Okay? So what questions are there and the main thing, and you got 30 seconds. No, you got five minutes to 10, somewhere in there. Chapter 3, verse 8 through 22. If you don't have a Bible, apparently some people have left them on the front pew, so you can, you can use the unmarked Bible. Or, if you need large print, I've got the Union Pulpit Edition. <laughs> First Peter, chapter 3, 8 through 22. Two things I want you to do. First of all, what question or questions come to mind when you read it? And two, what is the main theme? Or if you had to say the one thing that stuck out Peter saying here is, what is it? First Peter chapter 3, 8 through 22. All right. Some of you may be done, some of you may not be. So what questions do you have after reading it? Anything stick out? Causes a question? The Spirit's in prison. Anybody been to the Spirit prison lately? And made a Geraldine doesn't make a trip down to the spirit prison. All right, we'll talk about that. Maybe Russell, the flood and Noah. Yeah, Noah and the flood and baptism, and that we were saved through the flood, like we we're saved through baptism. But we're Baptists, so we don't believe in being saved through baptism. So what does that mean? Okay. Anything else? Any other questions? They're at the end, right? Who is it that he is now over? Okay. All right, so what do you think? What's the main thing here? What's the main thing Peter's trying to teach, in your opinion? Do good. <laughs> what's that? How to give your testimony. Watch your tongue. Y'all don't realize that whatever you pick out, this is kind of like the Warshak test, whatever you pick out is what you're dealing with within your own life. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and all God's people said, all right, let's go. Thank you, Miss Ann. That was good. That's a good summary right there. She, I can't repeat what she said. She preached about a 20-minute sermon over there in one sentence. It was really good. You Afterwards, you can get her book that she wrote. Uh, she, t- she talked about Christ died for our sins. We need to live in a way that shows that. Be a witness if in, in the midst of suffering adversity. 
All right. Here's the thing. We, we are actually in this passage straddling the end of the second major section and the beginning of the last major section of this book. And so the first part of this is the ending of that section that did the household code. You remember that? The last few weeks we had the um, slaves and the masters and the wives and the husbands. And so that's ending that section. And then we're moving to the end when he's kind of going to give the final charge. Okay, the closing argument. The Here's what we need to realize as we move forward. And so that's kind of where we're straddling. And so there are a couple of things in here that don't always kind of seem to flow together, but do flow together. We have to remember that Peter, when he wrote this, and I say this a lot because it helps us to remember, Peter, when he wrote this, did not intend for it to be read over a three-month period. He intended for it to be read right now. Okay? And sometimes when we read over the way we do Bible study, I mean, the reason we don't study it all in one setting is because none of us has 12 or 13 hours to set aside, right? Just to y'all listen to me talk for 12 or 13 hours. We don't have that. And so it didn't take them that long to read it, obviously. But it's like, um, have you ever started a book, gotten halfway into the book, and then it got laid down for like uh, six months or so or a while? Then you pick it back up and you're like, I don't remember what that guy is. Who who is that? Who is John? Who is Bill? I don't. And you have to flip back through and kind of see. And so when we come to it, we have to kind of flip back. Okay, let's remember. He's in the midst of telling people how to deal with things in adverse circumstances. Okay. So in verse eight, he's going to say, "Now all of you, that not the slaves, not the that just the wives, not just the husbands, not just those that are being persecuted, all of you." should be like-minded and sympathetic, should love believers and be compassionate and humble. The first thing that he's going to say to them here is that they need to cultivate within themselves a love for one another. And the way that he emphasizes that is through a Greek grammatical construction called a chiasm. All right? It's called chiastic structure. And I know y'all talk about that in the line at Publix and Kroger and all of that, all right? But a chaotic structure just means that you have, in this case, five elements, and you match the first and the last, the second and the fourth, and whatever finds itself in the middle is the most important. Okay? And so what you have here are five, actually, adjectives. In that verse, there are no verbs. Now, they translate them as verbs. You, sh- you know, sometimes you should love believers, but that's not that's an adjective. But what it means there is there are five adjectives in that kind of chiastic structure. So, for instance, the word like-minded and humble are paired up together in that structure. Sympathetic and compassionate are linked up together. And so right in the middle is you should love believers. And so the first thing he wants them to understand as he's kind of winding down... now. We still got two chapters after this, but he's starting to wind down. Is the most important thing they need to do is to learn to love one another. The word finally means to sum it all up, and just as the whole of law is summed up in love, so the whole of human relationships is fulfilled in love. Now, the way that you show that love is, first of all, through unity of the mind, through being like-minded. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't differences of opinion or differences in general. 
Um, I, one of the things as a pastor I get to do is I get to do lots of premarital counseling. I get to do counseling in general. And here's the thing that I have noticed in my um, 11 years of premarital counseling. I've never had two people that are exactly alike. And if they're exactly alike, as somebody has said, then one of them is unnecessary. In fact, oftentimes part of the premarital counseling I do is we do an online assessment. And it, they take tests separately, and it comes back to me, and I get all the results. And part of that is a personality test, the scope test, okay? How you social interaction, change, um, organization, personality kind of things uh, are pleasing, and then uh, just how your expectations are in life and emotional stability. And so it's always interesting because they graph the results, And almost always, husband and wife-to-be have differences. Any any of you here currently married to or have been married to somebody that is different than you? Right? (laughs) Yeah. We uh, had one a little while back that on the organizational one, one of the members of the couple was almost at the top and one of them barely registered at the bottom. Right? And we had to have a little discussion about how those differences that are endearing in the beginning are not so endearing two or three years in. And how sometimes we think, well, they'll come around to... Right? I know he's not very organized right now, but he'll learn. And three years in, socks are still left, you know, in the bathroom or in the living room and shoes are on top of the table. So how in the world did that get there? Well, where's that bill? Oh, I don't know. I put it in that pile over there somewhere. Right? They're different. Well, in churches, we're different as well. We have differences of opinion. Now, we all should agree on the who that we're around and the what we ought to be doing. And the why we ought to be doing, but the how we ought to be doing it, we can differ greatly. In fact, there are tons of churches all over the place that are doing it differently. I heard some people talk about going to Miss um, Irene Intrican's daughter's funeral. And that is a church that does it differently than us. Okay? They ride their bikes, not like, you know, not like, you know, bicycles they ride their motorcycles to church and it's a motorcycle church and their music um, makes our contemporary service look very tame okay Um, but they're doing a job of being a community proclaiming the gospel of jesus christ and what he says is that in the community in which you find yourself in love one another across your differences around what may be difficult and genuinely love one another in unity of mind, with compassion, a sincere sincere feeling for and with the needs of others. Our English word sympathy comes from the word um, to meaning to feel with. We don't get hard-hearted towards one another. So when someone's going through a very difficult time, we go through a difficult time with them. When someone's going through a great time, we go through a great time with them. Now, sometimes you say, well, wouldn't that put you on a roller coaster of emotions? Here's the truth. In a church at any time, there are tons of people celebrating, 
and tons of people mourning, it kind of keeps you level. Enjoying one another's successes. Mourning with one another's losses. In fact, one of the words used here is uh, sympathetic, which is a word that, or, or excuse me, not sympathetic, but um, compassionate and sympathetic. One of the words that's used there sometimes in translation is the word pity. Now, we don't think of pity as a good thing, right? Don't you pity me. Or we'll tell people, don't have a pity party for yourself, right? But the idea is not that we look down upon them, but the idea is that we feel with them. Courteous. Involves much more than being um, than feeling like a gentleman or, or being ladylike. It means thinking of others before you think of yourself. The first thing he says to them is, in this world that we're living, they are constantly looking for something. And as a congregation of believers, you ought to be holding forth this ideal of love that they can look at. You might see the research study that came out this week from the the Pew Research Institute. You might see that. That for the first time in American history, Protestants are no longer in the majority. Now, here's the thing that it's not revealing to me that followers of Jesus Christ aren't in the more anymore because even when you say Protestants, you don't necessarily mean followers of Jesus Christ. That means on a sheet of paper, are you Protestant? Yes, well, I'm not anything else, so I'll be Protestant. Or I grew up and I went to the Methodist church down the street, I'll put Protestant. In fact, if you look at it, probably half of those that claim to be Protestant are people that even go to church and maybe Two-thirds of those are people actually followers of Jesus Christ. And so if you do that, somewhere around 15% of the country are people that are following Jesus Christ. Fastest growing, you might see what the fastest growing segment is now? The nuns. No religion. Not the nuns. Not N-U-N-S. <laughs> Y'all didn't know. That's making a comeback. Sally Field is getting ready to play the flying nun again. No, the N-O-N-E-S. No religious affiliation. Okay? So, they're up at 20%. Here's what I think. I think, somebody, uh, one of the LifeWay's representatives wrote, one of the things that's going to happen in the next generation is nominalism will be gone. What he means by that is people that say I'm a Christian but they're not following Christ. Because there's no need for them to act like it anymore. Which, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Here's what I think. I think that in the coming years, the American church is positioned for a great opportunity for a movement of God in this country. But there are two or three things that the church has to provide for the culture to see. One is we have to show some transcendence. And what I mean by that is that what we are following is a greater cause. Even in things like sports, they try to get teammates to say we're fighting for something bigger than ourselves. As a church, we have to show people that God is bigger than the other stuff they're dealing with. I think the most important thing we can show them, though, is community. Because here's the thing. The people in that category that said they don't have any religion, they don't really follow that, at some point in their life a crisis is going to hit where they're going to need some community. 
And it's not just the church that is a command. I mean, most of us grew up in a place where when our parents or grandparents or even us, we had problems in our lives, the place that we turned was the church. And in small towns across America, even if it wasn't the church, it was the small town across America you turned to. There are going to be, we are more urbanized than we have ever been as a nation. There are going to be countless numbers of people that are now 25 that 15 years from now are going to have something tragic in their life and they're going to need a place to belong. But they're not going to take fake community. They're not going to take, I'm fine, you're fine, we're all fine. We don't like each other, but we sit by each other. We talk to each other occasionally. They're not going to take that. Our kids are not going to take that. And the problem is they think, the reason they're okay to say none right now is they think they have community because they've got 1,400 friends on Facebook. That's not community either. And in times of difficulty, you can put up a status that says, Terrible day today, found out so-and-so happened, need your prayers, and you'll get 200 likes and 40 comments, and you see everybody loves me, but the next day, that's off the page. And they're going to need a place of community. And here's the difficult thing about it for us as believers in a church. We know what it should sound like, but we don't know if we're experiencing it. John Stott, who was a great theologian who passed away recently, like in the last year, He said this, the problem we experience whenever we think about the church concerns the tension between the ideal and the reality. The ideal is beautiful. The church is the chosen and beloved people of God, his own special treasure, the covenant community to whom he has committed himself forever, engaged in continuous worship of God and in compassionate outreach to the world, a haven of love and peace and pilgrim people headed for the eternal city. But in reality, we who claim to be the church are often a motley rabble of rather scruffy individuals. Half educated and half saved, uninspired in our worship, constantly bickering with each other, concerned more for our maintenance than our mission, struggling and stumbling along the road, needing constant rebuke and exhortation which are readily available from both Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. The challenge for the church today is to be the community God has called us to be. The living embodiment of what God wants for people in social relations. How many of you here listen to Simon and Garfunkel at some time in your life? When I was growing up, my dad would try to introduce me to all this music, Otis Redding and Simon and Garfunkel and Sam and Dave and The Temptations and... I acted like I didn't like it, and then I'd go to my room at night and listen to it. All right? And I had a CD, Simon and Garfunkel's Greatest Hits. So I'd listen at night. They, I'll tell you this right now, still to this day, Simon and Garfunkel are really good music to go to sleep to. They can put you out pretty quickly if you're getting a little tired. All right, Boxer and Bridge Over Troubled Water and Mrs. Robbins is a little, you know, peppy, but you never thought you'd get to Bible study and talk about Mrs. Robinson, right? tonight i have a song and one of the lyrics says i am a rock i'm an island and a rock never cries and an island feels no pain well rocks and islands may not but people do 
people in our society are going to find out that online social interaction is not community. Because God created us for community. And what Peter says is, you need to live with one another in a way that brings love as the forefront of what you're doing. The churches of God are supposed to be communities, expanding, welcoming, incorporating all kinds of believers into the body. I found this quote today. I thought it was really good. It says, in the church, people ought to find trust, commitment, the development of a self-identity, and growth in one's understanding of what it means to be a Christian in relationship with others. It can easily be said that what the world needs from the church is an alternative society. A society in which people are treated as genuine individuals worthy of love and instruction. Instead, the church has too often repeated those characteristics of society that are sources of despair and pain instead of offering an alternative to hurting people. Put differently, if Peter's churches were havens in which people could endure persecution, ours today ought to be havens in which people can endure the onslaught against personal morals and identity. The church is the house of God. God is a holy and loving God. He calls His people to be holy and loving in community. Love each other. But then He says, but that's not good enough. If you just love each other, that's not good enough. You've also got to be able to love those that are against you. The recipients of this letter, remember, were in severe persecution because they were doing the will of God. And Peter warned that official persecution was just around the corner, so they better get prepared. It wasn't going to end. It was going to get worse. Somebody has said, as Christians, we can live at one of three levels. We can return evil for good, which is the satanic level. We can return good for good and evil for evil, which is the world's level. Or we can return good for evil, which is the divine level. Think about this for a minute. He says, don't pay back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, give a blessing. Now, who wrote this book again? Peter, all right? When they arrested Jesus, what did Peter do? He cut a guy's ear off. Return a blessing for cursing, all right? What did Jesus do immediately? Healed the ear and told Peter to cut it out. Not like, don't cut the ear out. It's pun night at First Baptist Church, right? Stop it, right? And now here's Peter. That must have had a major impact on him. To see the way Jesus was taken, because he's going to talk about that in a minute. In fact, he quotes Psalm 34, 12 through 16 here about that idea of the one who wants to love life and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their requests. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We've got to want to love life. It's an attitude to say, the Lord has placed me here and I'm going to absolutely love what's coming my way. It's an attitude of faith that sees the best in situations. It's the opposite of pessimism. We can decide to endure life, escape it, or enjoy it. What Peter says is, enjoy it. 
But here's an interesting thing. He says, the people that really enjoy life, they have this one thing in common, or a couple of things. But the first thing is, they control their tongues. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? People that enjoy life, they know when to stop. There's this kind of crazy commercial on TV right now. That's a, I think it's about a car that tells you when to stop putting air in your tires. Have you seen, anybody seen that commercial? And every time he goes a little, like he's shaking hands with his boss, and all of a sudden it beeps like that's too far, you know, and um, what's that? Yeah, it tells you, like, because he's like giving him, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, there, there are a couple other situations, uh, and, and it's never know, have to know when to stop. Any of you ever had words come out of your mouth, and as they're coming out of your mouth, you wish you could grab them and hold them? Anybody else? You know what James says about the tongue, right? It's the hardest thing on earth to control. You can tame animals, but you can't tame the tongue. He says, those of us that are believers, one of the most difficult things in the world is that when people come against us, not to speak against them. When I'm doing that premarital counseling or doing counseling in general, one of the things I always say is you have to learn to listen. And in listening, that means that when the other person is talking, you're not thinking of the comeback right away. You know what I mean, right? Now, I know that all of you that are married here never do this, but when your spouse begins, you're in a, you're in a discussion. Let's just say a discussion, all right? And your spouse is starting to express themselves that in your mind, suddenly the checklist starts rolling yes but i well, I, can, I can and i've got my stop talking because i'm ready to go he says listen take it in don't return evil for evil and then he says not just that it's not just hold your tongue and keep your lips from deceit what does he say when evil's done to you what should you do do cliff this is yours right do good Seek peace and pursue it. It's an act of faith. And he says, if you're doing that, and then he asks this rhetorical question, I mean, who's going to hurt you if God's eyes and ears are open to you? Well, the reality is he can't mean nobody will actually hurt you because these people are persecuted and some of them would die for their faith. But his point is, if God's watching out for you, what can anybody really do to you? If God's taking care of you, it, nobody can touch you. Now, they may destroy your body, but you win in that situation. In verse 14, he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness, you're blessed. That's the best thing that can happen to you is to suffer. That's one of those you don't get amens for it when you preach it on Sunday morning. Best thing that can happen for you this week is you can suffer. Amen. Uh, no, sir. That's what it says, right? When you suffer, you are blessed. You ever thought about this when you say, God bless you, that you may be saying, God make you suffer. What, right? For righteousness, right. That's a key element. But what we have, we can't deny in Scripture, is that the way God refines people often in their faith is through suffering for righteousness. And in case, like we've said for the last couple of weeks, we think we're too good for that sometimes, he gives us an example of a guy that suffered for righteousness that had no reason to suffer on his own. But before he gets there, he says this, don't fear what they could do to you. 
Don't fear what they fear. But set apart Jesus as Lord in your hearts. Now, here's the thing I want to say real quickly about that. He is not saying make Jesus Lord of your heart. Here's the reality. We can't make Jesus Lord of anything. He is. You know, I remember driving into small towns in West Tennessee, and they may be in Middle Tennessee too. I just I spent a lot of time on West Tennessee small towns. And it'll say something like, we have made Jesus Lord over Frog Jump. You ever been to Frog Jump? Nice. It's, it's right, down the hall, right down the hall from Gates. It's right over on the halls and Gates. All right? But here's the thing. You can't make Jesus Lord of Frog Jump. He already is. You're not making Him anything. What this is saying is, live like you believe He is. So live your life like you believe Jesus is Lord and He's in control. Trust Him. Have faith. Make your heart. Your heart here doesn't mean just the emotional center, but the will-making aspect of your life, the decision-making aspect of your life. Live your life continually as if you believe Jesus is Lord, if you believe Jesus is Lord. If while you're doing that, be always ready to give an apology what it says, a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's within. He's saying, listen, the way you live with one another, in fact, he talks about here that it all ties back to loving one another, taking care of one another, turning the other cheek, not returning evil for evil. He says, when you do that, some people are going to be interested to know why in the world are you living that way and be prepared when they ask with the defense, with a reason for the hope that is within. And then he says, but be careful when you do that. You ever heard somebody make an argument and realize they probably won the argument, but they may have lost the bigger picture because of the way they won the argument? Like they may have had better answers, or they may have had a better understanding, or they may have proven their point, but in doing so, they completely took away their integrity in doing it. I watched a a debate one time. I remember the debate. It was between a an atheist and a believer, and it was about whether God existed. And I, I, you know, first of all, it's not hard to convince me God is real, and so I believe He won. But I remember thinking He's winning the argument, but He's losing the battle because the other guy's gracious in his answers and seems to give mercy at times and he is like a bulldog that's been starved and they threw a bone out there all of a sudden he says when you give your defense do it with gentleness and in fear of god keeping your conscience clear so that and here's an interesting thing when you are accused those who denounce your christian life will be put to shame now here's the reality there are people that denounce the Christian life in Jesus Christ on a daily basis, multiple times a day, and it seems they're never brought to shame. The idea is the long term here, that they will eventually be brought to shame. Live your life in a way that you're one of those that when they're brought to shame, you are there lifting up, praising the Lord. Maintain a good conscience. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. And then in verse 18, he gives us one of the most concise statements about what Jesus did. 
For Christ also suffered for sins once for all. His death paid it all. You don't need to pay it anymore. The sin is paid. The righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us, you, to God. After being put to death in the fleshly realm, made alive in the spiritual realm. Okay? There are a lot of people get hung up. What does it mean, fleshly realm, spiritual realm? Here's just the point. That in his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus Christ bought access to the Father for us through the righteous dying for the unrighteous. Okay? Then we get to one of the most hotly debated verses in all of Scripture. Verse 19 and 20. In that state... Whatever that means. We'll talk about that in a minute. He also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison who were in the past were disobedient when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Okay? Here's the reasons it's so highly debated. First of all is because it's written in a weird way in the original language. And so it's hard to translate. The second is, what in the world is he talking about? Right? Here's what I'm going to tell you tonight. I can't give you an answer completely there. I can give you the theories. I looked in one book today. There were 30 theories. We're not going to go through all 30 theories. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. We're going to go through three. All right? I figure that's pretty good. 10%. These are the most prevalent. The three most prevalent are this. All right? What is he talking about? The spirit prison and the people that were disobedient. Three main views. First of all is the descent into hell view. We'll talk about that. The second is the pre-existent Christ view. And the third is the triumphal proclamation over the spirit world view. All right? So when you're needing good conversation at Chick-fil-A tomorrow, you can talk about these three. All right? So here they are. First of all is the uh, descent into hell. How many of you have ever heard that when Jesus died, that in between that death and the resurrection, he descended into hell and told people in hell about Salvation. How many of you heard that, right? Where does that come from? The Apostles' Creed descended into hell, right? Although, in the, here's the confusing thing about the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles didn't write the Apostles' Creed, all right? So that's the place it comes from. And the place that they get it scripturally mainly is here, okay? And here's what they would say. For those that believe the descent into hell view, they would say that the through whom refers to Christ in a disembodied spirit prior to his resurrection, went to the fallen angels of Genesis chapter 6. Now, where did they get Genesis chapter 6? Because of Noah, right? This whole description of Noah in this passage. And First Peter, you're looking at me like I've completely gone off the rails, all right? In First Peter chapter 3, it talks about in the days of Noah. The spirit, spirits in prison as in the days of Noah, okay? So that these are the ones that have been imprisoned from there or those who died in the flood or those who had died previously. The prison refers to hell. The expression he went describes the descent into the underworld and preach refers to a genuine offer of salvation to those who have never had an opportunity to hear the gospel. So they think that Jesus dies on the cross and the question is, well, what did he do for two days? You know, just kind of... Hang out, where's the spirit, what's going on there? Because when we die, immediately our spirit does what? It goes to be with the Lord. So, you know, what was Jesus doing in those two days? Well, the Apostles' Creed, what people would read this would say is, he, out of his body, went down to the spirit world, down into hell, and held a revival service 
for the spirits down there and says, you need to come and believe in me. I'm about to rise from the dead. This is your last chance. Okay? That's one view. I want you to remember that. That's view one, okay? So we're going to vote at the end. And we will have the authoritative vote for all of Christian history at the end, all right? The second view is the pre-existent Christ view. All right? There are places in the Old Testament where there are people that think that the Christ pre-existent shows up, right? Anybody think of those places where a pre-existent Christ shows up? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are put in the fiery furnace and they look down and there is one who looks like one resembling the Son of Man. People think that may be pre-existent Christ down there with them. Anywhere else? God came to Abraham. There are some that think that one of those was a pre-existent Christ figure, the main one there. Yeah. Joshua, Jericho, they're getting ready to decide what they're going to do. They meet up on the hill and the angel of the Lord comes and uh, meets with them there. So there's some that say, okay, what it's talking about here is a pre-existent Christ walked around on the earth in Genesis chapter 6 preaching to those people of Noah's day about the coming flood and those people did not listen. All right? So that's one thought. Let's just remind ourselves, okay? Another reason this is really kind of weird, just to be honest, different. I don't mean weird in a bad way. I just mean it's different. What was going on at the first part of Genesis chapter 6? Right? Yeah, the sons of daughters, I mean the daughters of men and the sons of gods were intermarrying and having children. And whatever that means, it means. And so on top of, you've got Jesus now going to preach the spirits somehow connected to the spirits from the days of Noah. So you've got one of the most hotly contested passages of the Old Testament now being interpreted in a New Testament fashion by Peter in one of the most hotly contested misunderstood passages in the New Testament. So they say pre-existent Christ goes back to who is pre-existent, the spirits or the contemporaries of Noah. The prison is a metaphor for sin and ignorance or a little description of their location now. He went refers to neither to a descent, but rather describes that Jesus spoke. The verb preached describes a general presentation of the gospel um, of Jesus. All right? That's number two. Number three. This is the triumphal proclamation of victory over the spirit world by Jesus. After his resurrection, prior to his ascension and exaltation, takes the following views. That through whom refers to some kind of spiritual existence of Christ after the resurrection. The spirits refer to the fallen angels, perhaps of Genesis chapter 6. The prison describes the upper regions of binding, or in the words of Second Peter 2, the pits of darkness, that Jesus went there and he proclaimed, not you can repent, but just proclaimed that victory had just been bought, that he had won the victory, the battle was over, and their fallen angel status was complete and forever established. Number three. All right, here we go. You've got to vote. You've got to vote. No abstaining from voting. All right? So this is one, two, or three. One is the descent into hell. Two is the pre-existent Christ spoke to Noah's people. 
Three is Jesus proclaiming general victory over the spirits. All right, how many of you are number one? We have no Catholics in our midst at the moment. Maybe some prior, but not current. The descent into hell. All right, number two. Number three. Most modern scholarship believes it is number three. But here's the truth. I don't know. That's called fence riding, Miss Joan. <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing. Regardless, whatever it is of those three, it doesn't really matter today. Because it means the same thing. Here's what it means. That Christ was vindicated. The righteous was slaughtered, but proved he was right. God vindicated by calling him to the right hand to do what it says at the end there, Mr. Cliff, about those authorities and all those that he's over. The idea is he went and made proclamation and that it says that he has gone to heaven, he is at God's right hand, and everything is under him. Angels, authorities, powers, everything is under him. The point is this that he's making. And he tells them, you're kind of like that. Now, you're like Noah who was saved through the flood. Now, he says baptism, and just in case we get the idea he's talking about baptism saves that's not what he says he says baptisms which corresponds to this now saves you not the removal of the filth of the flesh but of the pledge of a good conscience toward god so he says it's not the actual going down in the water that saves you it's the commitment to follow jesus jesus what he's done for us that saves us all right it's not a there's nothing special about the water up there it's water out of a tap and heated up all right it's not special. It's not the washing away of earthly filth. It is the commitment to the Lord. And when we do that, what happens is, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it proves that one day we will be vindicated. And even if you lose your life here and now, that in the end, we will win. So live your life as if today doesn't matter near as much as then, it is the ultimate example of delayed gratification. We don't like that word in our society. I wanted some popcorn this afternoon. Deborah's favorite thing in the world is when I decide I want popcorn. Because it, you know, popcorn doesn't smell up the whole office or anything, does it? And I wanted popcorn. How many of you remember the way you used to cook popcorn? Maybe some of you still do, but... Right, on the stove, you get a little oil, you... Put the kernels in and you shake it, right? Put the top, shake it. I remember one time my brother was doing that. And as we say in West Tennessee, it caught a fire. Right? I remember my brother opening the lid and fire was coming out. And he just took it and dropped it on the floor. Didn't know what to do, you know, getting the flour, getting whatever, cutting it off. So until the day we moved out of that house, there was a ring, not a ring of fire, it's not Johnny Cash, a ring of, you know, burnt spot on the floor. We want it instantly. So I got it. A minute and a half later, I had popcorn. Okay? I want you to think about it just for a minute. What's the hardest thing in the world for you to delay? What, what, what do you do impulsively? Maybe it's something physical. Maybe it's eat impulsively. Maybe it's your tongue that gets ahead of you impulsively. Maybe it's thoughts that run away with you impulsively. We try to talk to our kids about delayed gratification. 
Peter's talking about the ultimate and delayed gratification. I mean, we're talking about a time when we will have more than we could ask or imagine. We can't even begin to think about how great it's going to be. And yet we get caught up in trying to take care of things right now to make it right. He says, don't worry about that. Live your life as if Jesus is Lord. Trust Him and live faithfully for Him. So that's the challenge that we have this week is to live faithfully no matter what circumstances are there for Him. All right? Let's pray.